Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. The village, in the, uh, the village of Mary and Martha, her sister Martha, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, it was Mary who was anointed the Lord with oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent him to him saying, Lord, the one who you love is ill. But when Jesus heard this, he said, the illness, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the, for it is for the glory of God so that the son of man might be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and her sister and Lazarus. And when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone you, and now you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in night, he stumbles because the light, um, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken uh, of his death, but thought, they thought he was talking about rest and sleep. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his disciples, let us go that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. When Martha had heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. But Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to, him, said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? They said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she quickly rose and went to him. Now Jesus, who had, been, who had not yet come into the village, was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said to him, see how he loved him. 
But some of them said, could he not have opened the eyes of the blind men, but also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know, knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When they said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Anna, make the camera a little tighter. Come zoom in a little bit more. And then mute the pulpit mic. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you because you are the giver, the sustainer, and the taker of life. Father, it is you who hold the planets and stars in motion. It is you who uh, causes the earth to rotate around the sun and turn on its axis. Father, it is you who hold the the hearts of kings and presidents and uh, emperors and rulers, parliaments and congresses. Father, it is also you who holds our life in your hands. Father, I thank you that you are sovereign, and that we are not. Father, as we come, we confess to you that our hearts often fear. Fear what our eyes see and what the pundits tell us and what we read on Facebook and Twitter and see on the news. We fear because there are so many questions and so few answers. And from this world, there are no answers that satisfy you. But Father, I thank you that it is not our ability to produce answers, but our ability to look to the one who is the answer, who is the resurrection and the life. Father, grant us eyes to see and ears to hear the words of Jesus today. Father, I pray for our congregation, for those who are susceptible to this virus, to those who may have it and not know it, to those who will be stricken with this virus in the next days, weeks, or months. Lord, I pray that you would protect them. We thank you for the medical care, for the first responders, for the administration of our country and our state uh, and our local level. And I pray that you would give all of them wisdom and mercy and compassion and most of all, humility. Father, I pray for those in our congregation whose jobs have been affected. I pray for Donna Proya, for Ginger Bracewell, for Brooke Bruski, for Jerry Wade. Lord, that you would provide for them. For those in our congregation who I have failed to mention, I also pray for Joseph Dronik. Father, there are so many that I do not know their needs, but you do. And you have promised that my Lord will provide all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Not only financial needs, though those are 
um, close and urgent to us. Father, I pray for our mental health, for those struggling in our congregation with depression and anxiety, and Lord, they need to get out of their homes, but they can't do that because of the isolation. Lord, I pray that you would give their spouses and their loved ones patience with them, compassion for them, that you would calm their minds in this time. Father, give them peace when their body is telling them there is no peace. May your gospel say, hush, peace be still. Father, I pray for the spiritual needs of our congregation as we are apart from each other that uh, the flame of the gospel and faith will not grow dim as when a charcoal is moved, removed from the fire, but use these insufficient podcast or these live streams and zoom churches and phone calls and 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 emails and may you bless these this is not the way it's supposed to be but we seek to be faithful in this time father we need you we need you every hour we ask your blessing we ask your favor we ask your mercy and your grace for they are new every morning great is your faithfulness lord In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. If you're not already there, if you turn back to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is the story of the raising of Lazarus, but it's not actually about Lazarus. It's about Jesus. And it's about, John chapter 11 teaches us that God doesn't always act the way we expect Him. Isn't this the the way Scripture is throughout the, the Bible? As we read through the text, we see God doesn't always act the way we expect Him, the way we want Him, the way we think He should. No one expected that the king after God's own heart was the eighth son of Jesse who was forgotten in the fields as a shepherd. But he was the man, the chosen one, the man after God's own heart. Nobody anticipated that some no-name virgin girl from backwater Israel would be the one who would bring forth the long-awaited Messiah. No one, no one certainly would have chosen this ragtag group of misfit disciples. Uh, you had uh, tax collectors and fishermen and zealots. That these would be the apostles of the church of Christ. No one expected Jesus' upside-down kingdom where the first are last, where the weak are powerful, where those who mourn are comforted, and where peacemakers are called the sons of God. God doesn't always act the way we expect Him, and that's a very good thing. So as we come into another unexpected twist in Scripture known as John chapter 11, there are many of us this morning who know this story and know this story well. Like Crosby and the children, we've heard this story since we're little, and it's become so familiar, it doesn't surprise us anymore. And I pray that that we will take off the... um, 
we'll stop viewing Scripture through the lens of familiarity and look at Scripture with the eyes of a child, with wonder, with amazement that we would see Jesus in all His unexpected grandeur and glory. This morning I want to uh, show you that this, the, my big idea is this. The life of Christ delivers His people from the pain of sin and death. The life of Christ delivers his people from the pain of sin and death. And we're going to do that. We're just going to break up the story in three ways. An unexpected response, an unexpected diversion, and an unexpected outrage. An unexpected response, an unexpected diversion, and an unexpected outrage. Notice verses 1 through 3. I'm going to try to not recap everything because I know it's a long chapter. I've actually narrowed it down to what I thought I was going to be reading. Uh, But an unexpected response in the first 16 verses. Now, there was a certain man named Lazarus, and it was a, a, a family of Lazarus and Martha and Mary, and they were friends of Jesus, and they were living in this, the village of Bethany. Now, the way it happened that Mary and Martha and Lazarus had a very special relationship with Jesus. And Lazarus started to grow ill, and it may have been begun by your run-of-the-mill fever and, and chills, and he became sick, but it became apparently obvious that he was gravely ill, <clears throat> and if something didn't happen, their brother would die. And they probably tried everything that the ladies in the village had said, try this, try that. Finally, Martha realized the only answer that they had, the only hope they had in this time of trying, in this time of fear, in this time of difficulty, was that they would turn to Jesus. And so they composed a quick letter that simply said from what John has told us, Lord, the one you love is ill knowing it was Lazarus, and she, they dispatched it to where Jesus was, and Jesus got the message. They were desperate, and they didn't have all the answers, but they knew who had the answers and who can save him, and that was Jesus. And they were exactly right. But Jesus didn't act the way they expected him. And it didn't work out the way they expected it to. Notice verse 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Mary and his sister uh, and his sister and Lazarus. So, or as a Greek you could say, therefore, since he loved them, notice what he did. <clears throat> when he heard that they were Lazarus ill, he stayed two more days. Longer in the place where he was. Back in 2007, Tracy Lawrence sung the song with a few of his buddies, Kenny Chesney and I think Tim McGraw and a few others, that says, you find out who your friends are. And it goes like this, it says, somebody's going to drop everything, run out and crank up their car, hit the gas and get there fast. They're never going to stop to think what's in it for me or that's way too far. They just show up with their big old heart. You find out who your friends are. And I, they're right. Often in times of trouble, in times of need, it's surprising who shows up and helps and who doesn't. And that's the way it is. Tracy Lawrence, the great theologian, is right. And that's what you expect. And that's what you expect as you're reading through a text like this. But this is not what Jesus did. 
In fact, John tells us that because Jesus loved Lazarus, he stayed two more days. And can you imagine? Can you imagine if it was you asking for that help and you find out he didn't come right away? And how cold and unloving you would think that is. But John chapter 11 is not what you expect. It's a story full of surprises. And then finally, after two days, in verse 7, it says, then after this, after the two days, Jesus said to his disciples, all right, let's go back to Judea. Now, if you were the disciples, they were like, this is a terrible idea, Jesus. Have you really thought this through? Because... Jesus had just fled from Judea. It was in Judea where the Jews had tried to kill him. Look at verse 31 of chapter 10, just maybe a page back. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone Jesus. They're trying to kill Jesus because he is claiming to be God. They're trying to kill him. And then a few verses later in verse 39, the Jews sought to arrest Jesus, but he escaped from their hands. Jesus, on several occasions, had just narrowly escaped death in Judea, and now he wants to go back to Judea? He just spent two days here when he could have helped Lazarus, and now he wants to go back, not only jeopardize his life, but as Thomas is later going to say, I guess we'll go back to Judea with him and die with him. Jesus, as you read, you feel like he's nuts. And Jesus knows that when he goes back to Judea, he's going to face danger. He knows the Jews hate him there, but he also knows he must do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father was leading him to the cross, and his hour had not yet come. That hour of Jesus going to the cross had not yet come. So until that hour had come, no enemy stone, hatred, or spite could touch Jesus. And he must obey the will of the Father, and the Father was leading him back into the viper's den of Judea. Notice verse 11. As they're going back, Jesus feels like he needs to give them something as they are walking, thinking, golly, we are following a madman. And he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now, Jesus right now is speaking metaphorically, but the disciples think he's speaking literally. And Jesus clears those up. He clears it up and said, no, he's actually dead, stone cold dead. And I'm going to awaken. Notice verse 14 and 15. Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. That you might believe. Let us go to him. Now the question is, why does Jesus say, I'm glad I wasn't there? Because Jesus would have helped Lazarus if he had got there in time before Lazarus died. Uh, The pressure on them, he would have helped them. And the glory of Christ would not have been manifested to the people the way the Father had intended it to. Sure, the people would have awed and ood over the fact that Lazarus had, had, uh, was sick and he didn't die. We see that through in our study of the book of Mark. But Jesus was uh, prepared to do something greater, a greater symbol, a greater sign 
to show the glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Look back in verse 4 of chapter 11. This is what Jesus is up to. This is what Jesus is doing. This illness, Jesus says, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man might be glorified in it. Jesus was returning to Bethany to reveal this incredible sign of awakening Lazarus. This sign, this symbol, this picture, this foreshadowing of who Jesus really was and what he was about to do. He was, the Father was about to glorify the Son of God. Now, as we read this, you might say, but Lazarus died. And Jesus said he wouldn't. Jesus said this illness would not end in death. But he did not say Lazarus would not go through death, but that it would not end with death. The glory of the Son is about to be manifested when Lazarus walks out of this grave. They will look and say, there is no one like this man. This is significant. He is significant. He is the Son of God. But we come back to the question that uh, can be unsettling. Why did Jesus wait two days? Why didn't he go back? He, it was a two days walk. He would have been late anyway. Because when Jesus arrived, it was four days since Lazarus had died. Why does two days matter so much? D.A. Carson explains the thinking of the first century uh, of the reasoning why that Jesus would have, would have delayed. He said there was a Jewish superstition that when a person dies, their spirit departs from their body, but it hovers around that body for three days. And even the Jewish rabbis said, it is not until the, the spirit can see the appearance of the body changing, in other words, decomp um, decomposition setting in, that the spirit departs, and at that point, death is irreversible. Had Jesus arrived within the first three days, the raising of Lazarus would have been significant. But it was been received with mixed reviews. Some would say, this man is incredible. He just raised the dead. And other people would have been saying, aha, I see what you're doing. The spirit was still hovering and you got it back. It would have revealed Christ's power, but Christ's glory would not have been revealed. It would have just simply been discounted by the myths of the people of that day. Jesus was delaying his return so that when Lazarus was raised from the dead, the significance of the sign would be irrefutable. Jesus is doing something that's bigger than the experience of Mary and Martha. It's bigger than their grief. And Mary had no idea. She could never imagine what Jesus was about to do. It's very similar in the Old Testament where Habakkuk says, Lord, what are you doing? And, Habak and God says to Habakkuk, if I told you what I was doing in your day, what does he say? You wouldn't believe me. Ocean Park often 
To know Jesus and to love Jesus is to feel loved by Jesus. The raising of Lazarus, or excuse me, when you see Jesus for who he is for the first time, you realize the immensity of your sin and the full gravity of the love of God and the, how deep the love of God that he would, uh, that he would uh, heal you and, and um, redeem you. Paul wrote this in uh, Galatians 2.20 that we read this morning. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I'm a new creation. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And what is this, this uh, experience we have? Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. When we come to Christ and we trust the gospel and we love the gospel, we say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But even though that honest is honest and true, and we say that, how often do we doubt Jesus' love when, God does, when the Lord does not do what we think he should do, or what we expect him to do, or doesn't give us what we want? I think if you're honest, if you're anything like me, you would say far too many times I have doubted the love of God because he hasn't given me what I want when I wanted it. It's like we're saying, Lord, if you love me, then you will fill in the blank. You'll give me what I want. You'll do what I expect. The love of God, brothers and sisters, friends, anybody joining us on this live, uh, live feed the love of God does not depend on our understanding or our approval of God's actions. But learning and growing in Christ means that we trust the love of God that, and we recognize that his delays and his unexpected actions are not foolish, they're not stupid, they're not mistakes, and they're not pointless. God, the love of our Lord, can be trusted. Even when we don't understand what he is doing, and even, quite frankly, when we look at him and confess to him, I don't like what you're doing. Mary and Martha didn't understand why Jesus didn't come right away. They didn't understand why he didn't heal him, why he didn't even act like he was trying. But Jesus knew what he was doing. And Jesus understood and saw the bigger picture. And he had a better plan for Lazarus that day, even though Mary and Martha had no idea what God was doing. Brothers and sisters, the life of Christ delivers his people from the pain and sin of death. Even in the midst of unexpected responses, even in uh, the midst of unexpected diversions that Jesus uh, brings our way. How many times do you think as Martha and Mary and Martha looked up over the course of uh, three days when they heard a knock on the door or they saw a figure in the distance? How many times did they get excited and then come crashing down? How many times do you think their heart leapt thinking it was Jesus to who, who was coming and realized it was somebody else who had come to uh, mourn at their home? As they looked, as one day passed, there was no Jesus. As two days passed, there was no Jesus. As three days passed, there was no Jesus. Finally, on the fourth day, 
She sees in the distance the familiar gate of Jesus and his disciples on the road which lead them, led to their family home. Jesus had finally come four days late. Martha leaves behind a, a, a home full of mourners and well-wishers and her sister, and she meets Jesus on the road. And when she sees her, him for the first time, she laments in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But she almost corrects herself, realizing what she just said, and said, but even now I know that whatever the Lord you ask, God will give you. I don't believe she was accusing Jesus. I don't believe she was blaming Jesus. I believe she was acknowledging the power of Jesus. She knew Jesus well, and she loved Jesus, and she trusted Jesus, even though right now she did not understand, and she lamented. But Jesus reassures her in her moment of her grief in verse 23. He says, your brother will rise again. Well, Martha thinks... Yes, Lord, I know. She was really trained well in Sabbath school, and she says, I know that my brother will rise again on the last day. She believed in the resurrection at the end when it was come. But Jesus actually means, yes, your brother will rise again on the resurrection, but your brother is also going to rise in about 10 minutes. Martha doesn't get it. Her experience, her wisdom, her understanding, her perception, her perception blinds us to that. And she had, because she had no expectation whatsoever that Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead. It had been four days. It was beyond the point of no return. But it was in this moment, in her grief and her sorrow and her lament and not understanding, it was the love of Jesus that diverted her attention away from herself, her sorrow, her self-pity. And where did he divert her attention? He diverted her attention to himself. Notice verse 25 and 26. Jesus said to him, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he, sh he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, do you believe this? Jesus is simply not reminding Martha of good, sound doctrine that says a resurrection will come day. He's focusing her attention, her grief, her sorrow, her world on himself. Why? Because in the midst of her sorrow and her pain and her tragedy, she needs the only one who raises the dead and imparts eternal life into dead souls. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection. If you trust me, you may experience physical death, but death will not have the final word. I, Martha, am the one, Jesus, Jesus speaking, I am the one who resurrects dead bodies and dead hearts. I have exclusive power over hearts that are dead, over bodies that are dead. And then he says, I am the life. You cannot die if you trust me because I am the one who infuses the eternal life of an eternal God into people. I am the exclusive, exclusive giver of life. 
Jesus, in the midst of her sorrow and pain, was not tapping, patting her on the back and saying, it'll all work out in the end. He was diverting her attention to himself. He was boldly declaring that he is the divine author of all resurrection, both spiritual and physical, for he is the fountain of life. The fountain of life that Lazarus needed and Martha needed, that I need, and that you need. Jesus loved her too much to allow her to wallow in grief and self-pity. Instead, he tenderly and gently diverts her attention to himself. Because it is he who holds the power over death. Ocean Park, in our times of deepest grief, we need somebody to weep while we weep. We need someone to listen to our questions and to our struggles and not try to fix things, not to minimize our loss, not to come up with some hairball responses to our questions, just to listen. We need sound biblical doctrine to be gently reminded, but we need more than all of these. In the midst of our pain, in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our sorrow, we need Jesus. Because without Jesus, death has the final word. Without Jesus, we will never taste the sweetness of eternal life that comes from the eternal God who is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Ocean Park, in the midst of our grief, your grief and my grief, we need Jesus. Our only hope in life and death because He is the resurrection and He is the life. We need to remind each other, Jesus loves us. Jesus cares about us. And Jesus did something about our grief and sorrow. Martha wasn't expecting She wasn't expecting to find hope in the midst of her grief, but Jesus did. And he lovingly reminded her and diverted her attention to himself as the resurrection of life and uh, resurrection in the life. And he diverted her focus away from grief to himself. Why? Because it is the life of Jesus the life of Jesus who delivers his people from the pain of sin and death. Even in unexpected ways that God responds to our grief and our trouble, in unexpected diversions he has, even with an unexpected outrage. An unexpected outrage. Notice verse 28. And when um, she, uh, Martha said this, She went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went with him. And now um, Jesus had not come to the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, with Mary in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, today, in our culture, not all cultures, but our uh, 21st century American Western culture, when we go to a funeral, funeral, people are typically quiet, they're somber, they're discreet. 
We speak in hushed whispers around the deceased and their family. Even graveside services are typically reserved for immediate family and select close friends. But in the first century, funerals were the complete antithesis to this. They were loud and they were communal um, events. Grief was not expressed through quietly dabbing your tears and wish, with saying, oh, he's in a better place. Funerals were loud wailings and ex- cries of expressions of grief. Families, even poor families, would hire professional mus- musicians to really play music that really worked up the emotions of the people. And they would hire professional mourners who would wail and moan and weep in the middle of this. And um, Mary and Martha and Lazarus came from a a wealthy family, as we see later on. Uh, We can see that they would have been able to hire many grievers and many musicians to be able to do this. So this was a big ordeal at the time. And all these people saw Mary leave and assumed she was going to the tomb to grieve. So now, hey, that's our cue. Let's go. And they follow Mary. And they follow Mary as she meets Jesus for the first time after her brother has died. And notice verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. The very same thing Martha said. And it's true. They knew Jesus could have saved him, but he wasn't here. And they lamented that reality. She pours her heart out to Jesus, saying you could have saved him between her sobs as she fell at Jesus' feet. But it's at this moment that the narrative takes another unexpected turn and twist and a surprise. And John says it's not the going the way you expect it to go. When the crowd and the mourners and the musician came, Jesus expresses the most unexpected emotion. Outrage. Notice verse 33. It says, When Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come with him also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. A few verses later in verse 38, it says, uh, then Jesus moved again, came to the tomb. The Greek word for deeply moved in the spirit means to have strong feelings of concern, almost to the point of indignation. I use the example when you turn on the local news and you see a beautiful picture of a little child flash up, four or five. And then the, the, the commentator says, this child was abused, and this child was murdered, and this child was thrown on the side of the road like a piece of garbage. That feeling you have, that outrage, that anger that you well up and you clench your fist and you say, this is not the way it's supposed to be, and you want a piece of that guy who did that. This outrage is beginning to come up in the heart of Jesus. Not because his friend has died. Jesus knows what he's about to do in just a couple minutes. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But why does he weep with righteous indignation, being moved in a spirit? Because he looked around, 
And he looked at the family that he loved. He looked at these mourners and this grief. He saw his very good creation being ravaged by sin and endless pain and incalculable anguish and profound sorrow. And he was outraged at what sin had done to the world to the point that it moved him to tears. And Jesus wept. Those two little words are a profound indictment on sin in our world and how God looks at it and how God grieves. It's the moment that every parent, it's the grief that every parent who has laid their child in the grave feels. It is the grief that every spouse who has been separated by death feels. It's the feeling that a child has when they say goodbye to their parents for the last time. Death is hideous and death is ugly. Death is not natural. Do not believe what the world tells you. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. But where does death come from? D.A. Carson again writes this, death itself is nothing other than God's insistence that human hubris or pride will, not go, will go so far and no further. It's not, it is God's judicial response to our warped rebellion. Whether death afflicts us at five or ten or thirty or fifty or seventy or eighty years, it comes and it's implacable. We are sinners and we will die. Every time there is a death, it still hurts. It's still painful. It's still ugly. And it's still the result of sin. This is not the way God made the creation in the first place. Jesus is outraged by the whole thing. He's outraged by the death that has called forth this loss, by the sin that lies behind it, and by the unbelief that characterized everyone's response to it. There is outrage and there is grief. Ocean Park, death should be feared. Because death is repulsive. It kills and it steals and it destroys. But because of Jesus and because of the gospel, death does not have the final word. I repeat it. Death does not have the final word because a Savior who boldly declared, I am the resurrection and I am the life. It was this outraged Savior who called to the people in verse 39, take away the stone. Even Martha's protest could not stop this outraged Savior who is about to unfurl in splendid majesty and glory, the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God in their midst. And as the stone was rolled away, Jesus lifted up his eyes to the Father and prayed so that all could hear and so that you and I could hear as John records it in verse 41. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the count of the people standing around that they may believe that made me trust that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus! 
come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face unwrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. When Jesus calls Lazarus to come forth, Lazarus came out. Death cannot hold anyone who Jesus calls to himself. Just as Lazarus walked out of that tomb that day after four days, the authority of Jesus over death was unquestioned. The surprising outrage of Jesus demonstrated his authority over death after four days. Ocean Park, we live in unprecedented times. Our world has been turned upside down. As of right now, over one-third of the world, of the world, is in isolation. When I checked this morning, over 1.2 million people have been diagnosed with COVID-19, a silent, uh, uh, unseen virus that stalks in the day and in the night in our homes, and in our bodies. From the dirt poor in India to the crown prince of England, from senators to singers, from athletes to entertainers, from politicians to pop stars, over 65,000 people have died as of this morning and counting. A second crisis that's going on specifically in our country, over six million people and more have lost their jobs. We have yet to see the long-term catastrophic effects of this virus in our families, in our church, in our nation, in our world. What does a Christian do in times like this? What possibly can a Christian say? N.T. Wright this week, he um, wrote an article. N.T. Wright is a a well-known theologian. He wrote an article that says, Christianity offers no answers to COVID-19. It's not supposed to. And really, what he wrote, he says that they proposes Christians shouldn't offer knee-jerk reactions on behalf of God. Like, this virus is a punishment, it's a warning, it's a sign. And I agree with him. We need to put our hands on our mouth and shut up. Because we don't have the answers. We need to stop talking for God. Because we're doing more damage often than any good. He says, and I agree, that Christians should lament as God lamented when he came in Jesus by the tomb of his friend. But as I read through N.T. Wright's article, there's something that's missing. Even he quotes T.S. Eliot, who says we should be without hope because we hope for the wrong thing. What Wright misses is the hope of the gospel. What did Jesus do with such grief and sorrow that it outraged him at the tomb of Lazarus? Did he mumble some empty platitudes? He's in a better place. He's not suffering anymore. Yada, yada, yada. Did he shrug his shoulders helplessly like, 
I don't know what to do. Did he name it and claim it your best life now? God wants to bless you, Martha. Just believe him. No, no, and no. What did Jesus do? Jesus' unexpected response was to call Mary and Martha, and he calls you and he calls me to focus on him and what he would do eight days later. That he would die to pay the penalty of sin, and he would rise again to demonstrate his authority over sin and his authority over death. You see, the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11 was not the main event. It was the undercard. The big boys, the big title match was coming next week. Jesus cried out, Lazarus, come out. He was foreshadowing Jesus' greater death on a hill far away on an old rugged cross. Jesus was foreshadowing a greater resurrection in a newly cut garden tomb outside of Jerusalem. Jesus didn't go back to Bethany to simply raise Lazarus from the dead because if you think about it, Lazarus died again. Jesus came back to manifest his glory as the Son of God who is the resurrection and who is the life. The question, Ocean Park, that you must answer today is the question that Martha had to answer. Do you believe it? Notice verse 26 and 27. Do you believe this? Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who dies and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? In the midst of a pandemic that's going on in this world that we haven't seen in a hundred years, in the midst of this pandemic, we search for answers. We ask why, but answers are few. Sometimes our perceived silence of heaven is deafening. We pray, we weep, we lament, we fast with grief and with sorrow because of the effects of sin in our world. This is happening because we live in a fallen, broken world that's not the way it's supposed to be. This is a consequence of our rebellion in the garden that where Adam fell and brought all his descendants with him. In times like this, rather than giving answers, we love our neighbors by isolating ourselves and social distancing ourselves from them and following the authorities' recommendations. However, in times like this, when we don't have the answers, and we can't answer why, we have the who. We know how the story will end because we have the hope of Christ, the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is that there is a new heaven and new earth, as Revelation chapter 7 tells us, that is filled with the glory of God, and it will be populated by the redeemed people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation that have been united to faith in Jesus Christ. We know that there, that in a beautiful world will be, exist in this new heaven and new earth, and there'll be no more death and no more crying and no more weeping and no pain, for Revelation 21 says it is no more. 
We know that in the new heavens and new earth, the tree of life will be there whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. And how in the midst of this time do we have the hope of the gospel, the hope that is in Christ? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and we believe him and we trust him. Jesus died the death that I deserved on the cross I deserved. He drank the bitter cup that was reserved for me and my rebellion and my sin and my self-righteousness and my self-rule. So I would never have to drink the cup and I can drink the cup of grace. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it like this in the New Living Translation. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, for my sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Jesus, the resurrection and the life, died and rose again, that every person who is united to Jesus by faith alone will never die, though they experience death. Death will not be the final word. Few about a month ago, I got a text from Michelle Hatfield, Jane's daughter-in-law, asking for my pastoral advice about Ryan, her son, who was grieving the loss of his best friend, Taylor, at the tender age of 19. Ryan's heart was broken that his best friend had died. And he was upset that God did not answer his prayers to heal Taylor. He couldn't understand why God didn't answer his prayers and and heal her. Why he didn't save her. And I encouraged Michelle and Roger... To, take, to move Ryan's attention away from his grief, though it is real and it is true and it is bitter, and move it to what Jesus has done to save Taylor and all who trust in Jesus. Move his attention to the resurrection of Jesus, which is the first fruit, the foreshadowing of the resurrection that is to come. Not like Lazarus who was resurrected to his uh, sinful body and who would die again. But like Jesus' resurrection when he, after he paid for sin and he rose again to a glorified body, free from pain and, and sin and death, perfectly able to do the will of God and enjoy the, the bounty of the goodness of the Lord for all eternity. Jesus didn't stand idly by and watch Taylor died. Jesus struggled and he died to set Taylor free that she may have eternal life. There will be a day There will be a day when Taylor, along with the children we have buried, 
our separated spouses, and our parents who have gone before us, who have been united to Christ by faith, will be risen from the dead, glorified and clothed in righteousness that is not their own, but a righteousness that is from Jesus Christ. And the promise of the gospel is that Jesus and all who trust in Jesus as the resurrection and the life will never experience the punishment for their sin, though they die. They will be risen up and welcomed into the perfect joy and presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all who have put their trust and their faith in the promises of God and where they will never again have to say goodbye. Because the life of Christ has delivered them from the pain of sin and death forever. Ocean Park. I close with these words. Do you believe this? Gracious Heavenly Father, you have conquered sin and death. You have entered the tomb. You have drank the bitter cup. You have suffered in isolation so that we would not be held by in death that we could drink the cup of grace, that we may feast at the table. And we trust you. We trust you when you don't do what we expect and what we demand. We trust you when you um, divert our attention away from yourself. We trust you in your outrage that plunged the word of God and the promise of gospel into the heart of Satan and sin and death, that they may reign no more. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And until that day, we long and we love. In Christ's name, amen.